Hey everybody, welcome to Creative Agency, a show about taking control over your career, taking the plunge into the unknown, and using that energy to create something insanely great. Ever thought about being your own boss? About rewriting the rule book? About taking that dream job and making it real? This is the show for you. Just how do business owners, creative types, and entrepreneurs make it work? We'll find out what drives them, what inspired them to do their own thing, and how they've made it work. We're going to learn from the best, people who've taken the leap, struck out alone, and have the scars to show. I'm Jason McDermott, and you're listening to Creative Agency. Stick around, who knows just how far we'll go. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to a brand new year of Creative Agency. I've got a whole list of things that I'd like to share with you in the coming months, but for now, I'd just like to say, bring on 2014. It's going to be a great year. Now, before we get stuck into the show, I'd first like to thank Squarespace for sponsoring Creative Agency this week. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online folio. If you're interested in getting set up on the web, Squarespace is the best place to start. If you go to squarespace.com, you'll find beautiful templates that you can use to get your site up and running in just a few clicks. Their templates are designed to work on all kinds of devices, desktop and mobile, which is super important since more and more people will be coming to your site via mobile devices in the years to come. Once you've picked your template, it's also super easy to use. You can just drag and drop your content around on your site to your heart's content. If you're looking to set up an online store, Squarespace also has you covered as e-commerce is literally built right into the platform. It couldn't be any easier to get a slick, professional looking site up and running in minutes. At just $8 a month US, you can get a beautiful mobile ready website up and running including your own domain and hosting if you buy the one year package. You can start a free trial today with no credit card required simply by going to squarespace.com. You can also save an extra 10% if you use the offer code CREATIVE10. That's CREATIVE10. Thanks again, Squarespace, for sponsoring Tickler and Creative Agency. Also, right now, Squarespace is looking to hire passionate people who want to change the web. If you're ready to solve problems alongside some of the top designers and engineers in the world, then Squarespace wants to hear from you. They're going to fly 30 interviewees to NYC Put them up in one of the city's best hotels and show you around to help give you a flavor of the city. If you like the sound of that, go to beapartofit.squarespace.com to learn more and sign up. You can also refer a friend if you know someone who'd be a perfect fit for a company like Squarespace. Now, who wouldn't want to go and live in a bustling city like New York, working for an innovative web startup that's making the web a better place to be? All right, now on with the show. Okay, so today I have a very special guest to introduce. This man would have to have been the first influential business thinker that I've had the pleasure not only of meeting and seeing in action, but of working closely with on projects that we both felt passionately about. He was the first person to show this design-minded, business-avoiding guy that there's a real craft in creating businesses from ideas in learning how to learn what works in business and what doesn't, and also that we shouldn't run in fear from that big scary thing called failure. Instead, we cut it down to size and make it work for us in the time that we've got. 
Steve Lennon is that man, and he's a principal in the management consulting team at Arup, the design services firm where I worked for several years before starting this new adventure, and that's where we met. Whilst at Arup, I had the chance to work with Steve to build a new startup business internally, and on those projects I had the chance to learn from his wealth of business experience. Three years on, I'm still learning lessons from him. Now, Arup, as you might know, is a world-renowned engineering and design services firm that are known for the quality of their thinking and for the quality of the work that they help produce. But you'd be wrong to think that engineering or management consulting is the end of the story for Steve. Steve's a guy who seems to have collected careers the way you might collect stamps. But he calls himself a serial learner and he's got a lot to share from all of his time in the collective trenches. It's a real pleasure to have Steve on the show, and for me it feels like a little bit of a, a closing of the circle from where I was three or four years ago. In this interview, you'll get to hear what it's like to dust yourself off from two stock market crashes and three recessions, the dual mindset you need to have in order to stay sane in business, and how getting on the balcony can give you new insights into what you're doing that you can't see from where you are. Show notes for this episode can be found at tickler.net. Now let's get on with the show. Here's Steve Lennon on Creative Agency. So today I'm here with Steve Lennon, who's a principal and management consulting arm of Arup in Sydney. Um, Steve is uh, someone who I've worked with, worked alongside with uh, for a number of years here at Arup uh, in a former life and uh, someone who i I um, admire quite highly and uh, someone who introduced me to concepts, radical concepts like business model generation and business design. So uh, Steve, you're, it's great to have you on the show and uh, welcome. Thanks Jason, it's great to, to reconnect with you and good to hear about the slightly radical things you're off doing these days uh, under your own steam and with some of the uh, interesting people you interact with. Well, it's, it's been a bit of a journey, but it's not about me. Today is about you. Um, so, Steve, uh, I'm just digging into your, into your background, into your bio and your history. I, I uncovered things that uh, someone who would meet you today would have no idea about. You have a long, long history of doing very, very uh, radical things and jumping around from business to business, growing them um, in a short space of time. Um, how did you get started being, being this entrepreneurial spirited person that you are? Well, um, you're right and my dad used to tease me uh, saying I've had more starts than Farlap um, and I count this as career number six roughly um, being here in, our, in an infrastructure and the built environment context uh, doing management consulting. Uh, I guess most people would like to think that their CV reads like a, a lovely planned progression of a career. Uh, and it's obvious when you read my CV that, in fact, it's a, a happy series of accidents, uh, options I've taken at different uh, turning points uh, along the way to go and uh, learn something new. And I guess that really explains why it looks like such a hodgepodge of experiences, because uh, I think I'm a learning junkie. Uh, I wanted to be a nuclear physicist and I put all my uh, selections forward uh, to go to uni to do that. Uh, and then once I explained to my parents uh, the direction I was heading, Dad took me in the uh, car to the city. He was a banker. 
he introduced me to uh, some people at Coopers and Lybrand, now PwC, and he said, son, there's no money in science, you should become an accountant. And uh, it's the first time I've listened to him. So I started off... That was the first yeah. first and only time that you listened to Pretty him? Pretty much. <laughs> so I started off in a place where uh, it's proven I probably didn't belong, um, but a wonderful grounding in business. And from there, those additional um, experiences I've had in the creative, uh, the IT industry, the management consulting industry, and so on, each new experience gives you a, a new set of lenses through which to look at problems. And uh, I think now uh, that gives me a reasonably useful set of lenses uh, I can deploy with a client uh, to, to look at a particular opportunity or issue we're addressing. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a really great point. And um, when I look at the, the types of businesses that you've been involved with, either as businesses that you've been part of founding or businesses that you've grown from pre-existing bases, there, there is a theme, I would say, that runs through a lot of this, which is that you're almost like working with the clay of the business and trying to find what the right direction for it is. Um, but it's definitely it's definitely something where you're you're building it. You're not just in there for like the the slash and grab. You know you've got you've got this strategic vision uh, at heart. You had this really beautiful line, which was who you've been, who you would want to be in the future, um, and being being aware of of that uh, difference between those two things. So taking the the time to stop, look back on who you have been, and decide proactively who you would like to be. Um, and I think that you could say that would be the motto for your entire career. Would, would, would that be correct? Yeah, and I think having the courage and the, um, in some ways, the stupidity to be willing to uh, reinvent yourself, you know, it's something people talk easily about, but few people do. Uh, and I know I'm going to do that again uh, uh, at some point uh, uh, in the not too distant future. Um, the process of learning and being willing to uh, kind of step away from uh, what you've done in the past and be open to attacking something new. Obviously, to some extent, maybe it feels it gets a little riskier as you get more senior and uh, older in your career. Um, But I refuse to let that get in the way um, because I still feel pretty young at heart. I'm still just as uh, uh, thirsty to learn stuff as I always was. So I'm going to have a Uh, another try probably Um, and I think always uh, imagining that you have an option of doing something new that you don't need to feel bound to or captured by this profession thing that you're part of for me that's really quite um, uh, it gives me a lot of freedom and I know I'm not saying that people who've been a lawyer for 30 years or 50 years my father was a banker for 42 I'm not saying that's bad it's just not for me I'm much more of a uh, meandering brook. Yeah, as Seth Godin says, uh, don't have a, a plan B. So right. you know, if you have that plan B, we're fallible, we're human, we'll, we'll yeah. get, um, things will beset us along the path. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about you know, what happens after you've had, say, a, a course that you've gone through, say, 12 weeks of intense learning, thinking, mm. ideating, creating, and whatnot. Uh, and the the question is, you know, what happens six months down the track when when the hit the 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 thing hits the fan, or the market proves difficult, or uh, investors start asking tough questions, or you know these sorts of 
problems come up all the time. Mm. And if you have this plan B, it's so easy to just step back and go, oh, lucky I'm a lawyer. I'll just go off and do that career that I had planned, you know, in the background all along. Yeah, and, you know, that's one of many um, tensions that you need to manage. Um, I, uh, the process of uh, going uh, for broke, being completely committed to the vision for the business that you've set in place and the strategy that for the moment you've decided to pursue and yet being uh, entirely detached from it at the same time, that's not very easy. And I was only speaking to someone yesterday about um, the startup process that uh, many young entrepreneurs feel like the, the business is their baby and they treat it as their baby and they work 24 by 7 for its benefit and da 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 but it's really it's really hard to kill off a baby right whereas i've had to kill off and bury um businesses um or sometimes we've had to chop bits of a business off that were no longer uh in the face of mounting evidence really a viable part of what we're trying to do and so that's a really um uh you know, it takes a little bit of experience to learn how to hold some of those, um, in a way, dual realities. Yes, I'm completely committed to, the, to, to trying to do what we said we would. And yet, if in the end, um, we've given it a, a pretty good shot and the mounting evidence is that it's probably no longer the best way to go for us, you've got to be willing to then take an alternate path That's but it's a, not the same as falling back to a safe plan no, b yeah no it's it's more like having a clear a clear-eyed view of what uh what has and hasn't worked yeah uh, and you you might fall back to a different component of that business say removing one bit that wasn't working or you might fall back to a prior position of saying let's find out what is a good business idea and yeah. work with that and, and do something quite different and we know many many of the companies. I'm just reading uh, uh, Nassim Taleb's uh, Anti-Fragile and uh, he points out, you know, so many companies, Coca-Cola, Nokia, uh, starting off uh, in, in pneumatic tyres and in Nokia's case and ending up in, in telephony. Um, so many companies, so much of what they've achieved is actually about trial and error, not about wonderful strategy. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think there's a bit of a myopia with companies like Nokia or Hewlett Packard or uh, IBM nowadays, where we look mm. at them and think, ah, this is what they are and this is what they always have been. Um, and you can't see that 50 or 100 years worth of uh, iteration yeah. uh, along the way. So that's quite a challenging thing to do to become emotionally detached whilst also being intellectually committed to um, a, a business. How do you do that? What's, what, uh, what's the easiest and hardest part about doing that? Well, I think it's even weirder than that because I think it's, it's completely committed emotionally and emotionally detached. <laughs> Intellectually right. committed to the course of action and yet willing to stand back and scrutinise it even though you're the author of the plan. Um, well, I think... In you some, need to be a bit schizophrenic in order you do. to do that. It's, it's, uh, we talk about it in the culture work we do is having the capacity to be able to get onto the balcony and look at yourself and the other actors in your uh, business out there on the dance floor from the balcony and try to actually scrutinise and observe what's really going on. 
um, and then get back down and, and be part of the business again. I'm not a manager or a leader that, that floats above the business or is happy to merely direct people. I, I need to be part of the game. Yeah, that's true, and I think we've experienced that together. Um, and and that sort of comes from, I think, my background both as a banker and then as a, a management consultant being a seller-doer type consultant. Yes, I listen to the client, we frame the work, and then I get involved in actually doing the work. And each time I, I learn. Um, and uh, sometimes you have to, you will recognize you're going to disprove your hypothesis, uh, being an all-seeing, all-knowing consultant that obviously at the beginning of a project uh, knows the answer. Sometimes it's a bit hard to, to back up and admit, holy cow, the facts are, are pointing us in a different direction, an unexpected direction, but you've got to be willing to do that. And I think the hardest part is to know that um, the people involved in the business, the people that you're playing the game with, need to know that you're there for them uh, unconditionally, essentially that you love them. And I know that sounds a bit weird, but I don't think it's anything less than that. You need to be fully invested in supporting those people to be successful. Um, and yet what you're not looking for is an old-fashioned sense of loyalty that means you're not able to put them in a different role if they need to be one. You're not able to take them out of the business if they're no longer adding value. You're not able to um, push them into a more responsible role even when they're not ready for it and they're crying out for you not to. Um, but you can see that probably that's going to be the best way to progress and push the person. So schizophrenia is probably a good way to uh, summarise the position. Schizophrenic love. Yes. <laughs> that's attached and detached all, all at the same time. Um, you talked a little bit about uh, investment just mm-hmm. uh, in that last answer. And I'm curious, with the businesses that you, that you were operating, how much of it was purely um, external investment and mm-hmm. how much of it was... Um, Steve Lennon um, footing the bill, so to speak. Well, um, that's a a good area to explore because obviously I was uh, an employee of Coopers and Librand. I was an employee of that little company that doesn't exist anymore in New York City called Lehman Brothers. That's no longer a badge of honour to wear uh, and other large uh, uh, corporations. But after I left uh, a global IT uh, firm called Computer Sciences Corporation, I went to form uh, a management consulting business uh, with some other uh, people and I was given some equity as a sign-on bonus, just 2.5% of the equity of the firm. But I think that from... Did that seem like a lot or a little it, at I think the time? it did it, and, and it made me begin to behave differently from the get-go because this was my business. I had 2.5% only but... I'm telling you, this was 100% my business, was the attitude it provoked in me. That's amazing. And as things progressed and we built the business up, um, the directors offered me an opportunity to take some further equity, which I did. Um, I managed to uh, uh, become a member of uh, the self-managed super fund my dad had put together. So I ploughed some of the super money into it as well. And, uh, and then at the point I became managing director, I doubled down again. And, uh, and then ultimately we sold the business um, uh, further down the track and, and we achieved a very good return. But the point was that my behavior and my sense of ownership as I began to get towards you know, 15% of the equity in the firm um, really did uh, uh, kind of double up on the commitment 
and the sense of responsibility I had for the business. And, and I can see that in times when that's been the case, um, you're just that much closer to every decision, that much closer and, and taking ownership of the consequences of the decision too. The other, um, the circumstance at Imagination was not dissimilar. I also took some equity in the business and put some of my money into it and so on. And uh, in some dark days there when things were pretty tough, um, I helped make payroll on my credit card. That's when you know you're in a small business uh, because your credit card limit is enough to help make you payroll. You can do that. <laughs> <laughs> but it also really means you're, you're uh, again, uh, 100% owning of the business. Um, and I think those experiences, uh, I've then, in other startup uh, uh, areas where we've helped build a EcoDesk, um, a, a kind of LinkedIn for corporations to advertise and publicise their corporate and social responsibility position and publish data about their carbon, energy, water and so on usage, much like on LinkedIn you do that personally. This is from a corporate point of view. Uh, and I was a foundation investor in that firm, which is still um, operating. And you know that gives you, again, a, a very close interest in watching the leader uh, try and grow and evolve and fight for the idea uh, that business stood for seven years ago. And I have great respect for Robert Clark, the, the founder who um, morphed the business multiple times. Um, but I still always stayed interested in what was going on because part of my money was at stake. Are you, are you still involved with them at the moment? Yeah, yeah. Oh. And uh, we're doing some further equity raising at the moment and uh, looking to try and uh, ramp up the revenue base. And yeah, the learning process for that one hasn't stopped. Um, now, so, there's, there's something about um, the current startup mindset, which I would say has a big emphasis on immediate wins, quick mm-hmm. wins, and getting to market quickly, uh, getting to your growth curve as high as you can, getting to the investors. You know, it's all pounding and pavement, quick, quick, quick. Yeah. And you're describing a business that's been around for seven years. Mm. Um, there's, there's a different mindset um, that approaches these two different um, time scales. You know, one of them would be we've got to get to the market and get to investors within six to 12 months. Yeah. And we're talking about a new equity raise for a business that's quite mature, seven years old, still still operating. So that's mm. significant. Um, what is it about, would you say it's your financial background that uh, allows you to take sort of a more long view approach for how these things run? I think we uh, go back to schizophrenia again. So... Uh, I would uh, encourage and admire the sense of urgency that young entrepreneurs do have. And and we have always had that sense of urgency as you're moving from point to point in trying to grow and develop the business. Um, But being overly hasty about looking for the exit, looking for the um, door, uh, is really damaging. And I know when we were building the management consulting uh, firm after CSC, Uh, We had one of the directors who was, while I was um, unable to see out of the 20-foot hole I was in where we were laying the foundations for the firm, hiring the first few people, winning the first few clients, defining our proposition and getting organised, I could hear him up at street level with a big hoarding out the front on the megaphone selling the business at the beginning. 
and I knew that that was at least three years away minimum that um, we would have a business that would be in a state anyone would be willing to purchase. And we had a very uh, chaotic and destructive tension between uh, a real wish on the part of some of the board rushing for the exit versus those of us who were patiently building the business. So that's not good. But the urgency with which you want to be learning and pushing products to market in the minimal, minimum viable uh, kind of format, as people talk about these days, taking input and feedback from the market and then adjusting your approach and learning, acting, learning, acting, um, that approach I completely uh, uh, support. But you may as well assume it's going to take five to seven years to build an asset that is going to be of enduring value and that you can achieve full-ish value from rather than imagining you can build a business and flip it as they talk about in a year or two. Because I think that's going to give you the wrong impression to staff, the wrong impression to customers. You're going to start to make also short-term decisions inside the firm out of rushing for the exit. Whereas rushing to get a product to market rushing to be able to deliver value to a client, I think that sense of urgency and that act-learn, act-learn approach is all good. Mm. Yeah, the inner lean approach is called validated learning. Right, yeah. Uh, and that's that I think harkens back to um, uh, what you were mentioning earlier about uh, deciding whether a business is doing well or poorly and assessing that on the evidence available. Yeah. So you're doing the process of having validated learning, which then informs your next suite of decisions and and so on so what was it about um this situation where there's one person on the street level with the hoarding billboards and everything and you down in the basement how did you resolve that was it a process of getting on the same page or was it a process of um splitting way going separate directions or how did that um, how did that come to attempting to reconcile the two views and then exiting him from the business end as a shareholder okay in the end right yeah a so difficult that's... process, but uh, there was no alternative uh, uh, in the end. Did you have people around you that could support you, like emotionally or with advice at the time? Did it, was there anyone else that you could um, draw upon? Yes, I did have uh, a couple of other partners in the business um, who were aligned with the uh, approach that uh, I was uh, taking. And, and in the end, the, the chair of the board uh, came down uh, in the kind of camp uh, we were in of taking a little longer and, uh, and digging in to, to build the business. And, you know, um, in the end, we got a good outcome. Uh, but there was a, a little bit of luck involved uh, because we, we inked the deal to sell the business in March of the year 2000, just prior to the dot-com meltdown beginning in April. And uh, the transaction settled at 30 June of the year 2000. Um, and in the end, Logica, the business that um, ultimately purchased the, the business, in March when they inked the deal with us, their share price was £28. And by December of the year 2000, an IT company that was profitable, that had been in business for 30 or 40 years, uh, their share price was £1.20. And they'd been smashed alongside every other internet and dot-com because in, in that catastrophe year, even uh, profitable technology companies were, were slashed in terms of their valuation and we walked away with a decent um, dollar. So yeah, there was a little bit of luck as well. So the timing the timing really came into play there. Yeah. 
Um, I was going to ask you this earlier because um, that very experience of going through the dot com bubble, number one, mm. number two, the recession, two thousand seven, uh, eight, nine, even nineteen ninety, I was there for nineteen ninety, the one that we had to have, according to Mr. Paul Keating. You've you've been through seemingly unscathed a series of um, events that would make someone question their character. Mm-hmm. What's that like, being through those periods of time where everything around you seems to be just crumbling, share price dropping from 28 to 1? Like, what, what's that like? Uh, how, do you, how do you get through that uh, in one piece? I guess you have to have... Um, I guess I just have always had a sense of self-belief, self-worth, Hopefully not overblown too much. Um, yes, I'm confident, um, and self-confidence is something, particularly these days as an advisor, clients want to see some of. They don't really usually go to extremely timid advisors who don't believe in their own point of view. Um, but through, you know, 87, actually, you forgot one, uh, the crash, uh, stock market crash, which I was in London for, you know, bankers were jumping out windows. There were several suicides uh, through the 87 crash. 1990, I was in Perth and we managed through a near-death experience at the bank I was working with at that time, um, where the bank uh, was downgraded. We had to prepare for a run on the bank. We had to raise some new equity capital. Wow. It was a really near-death experience. And that was in the days of uh, Tricontinental and State Bank Victoria failing. Um, that that phrase, a run on the bank, just sends shivers down your yeah. spine. <laughs> and, uh, and we saw it again in 07, 08. Uh, and then back in 2000, yeah, um, uh, many, many people, uh, again, lost their investments, lost their jobs. So I guess I, uh, maybe it just comes from being a Western Suburbs boy, uh, having played rugby league as a kid from under sixes. Um, take a few knocks. I'm pretty happy to take a few knocks. I'm pretty confident I'll um, come out on the other side able to live um, a relatively um, simple but uh, rewarding life. I don't have enormous expectations either, perhaps. I'm very lucky to, to live in a nice home and so on these days. But I think it's, you said before about Godin saying no plan B. And I think that's part of saying I don't need a plan B because most likely it'll be just fine. And so pushing on and um, trying something different if, uh, if I'm seeing most of the people around me uh, uh, failing, if you like, or not succeeding at least. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I've been lucky to be through those experiences because I do think uh, it's something that obviously some young people like yourself uh, are missing because you haven't had the series of scars and the, the sense in which gravity can from time to time reverse this general growth and prosperity, which we think perhaps is just our birthright. It's not that way at all. Sometimes things can go, you know, seriously into reverse. Yeah. yeah well, I think um, as someone who's venturing into the small business world myself, uh, it's something that I'm not really anticipating uh, with any great relish, um, but perhaps a few scars wouldn't be, wouldn't be bad to have on, on my belt. Um, but when I look back at um, uh, perhaps taking a more keen interest in things like the investment markets and how things shift through time, um, it does it does uh, shock the mind, I think, to see just how 
um, emotionally people react given certain stimulus uh, and how a business that can be thriving, um, profitable, well-managed can still from the outside appear to be going under and so you get all this emotional response uh, and that's quite, that's quite alarming mm. when you look at it that way. But you haven't taken that approach. You haven't gone, oh, well, I'm just going to hide in my shell. I'm going to, I'm going to continue trying new things and continue learning. Uh, and that's, that's just a part of your character, the sense of uh, seeking adventure and change and growth. Yeah. And, and again, that's what you do in the rugby league field. You know, you don't take a backward step. You keep going forward. Um, there's a, a funny uh, saying that Dr. Martin Reed, who was the CEO of Logica, it's now called CGI, um, after a, a series of acquisitions, he was a legendary CEO because he delivered seven years of 40% compound earnings growth while he was CEO of Logica. Now, there's very few companies for any period of time, like seven years, that have delivered 40% compound growth in earnings. Without it being sort of artificial exactly. due to the size of the company. No, there was no lawsuits afterwards for misstating revenue or anything else. Or It wasn't inflated asset valuations. It was actually profit. And uh, at his uh, annual uh, senior management conference, he had a cute little... Um, uh, encouragement scheme he would get a few of the managers who beat their targets up and they'd tell a story of how they'd been very successful and they'd get a big clap and then he would make a few of the managers who'd failed to meet their targets get up and explain why and take personal responsibility for their failure in front of the other 200 members of the extended senior management team and he would cap the day off by simply saying don't get despondent those of you who didn't meet your targets, because losers bec can become winners fast. But what you need to remember is that losers mistake hope for action. And I've never forgotten that. And uh, in some ways, he wasn't a, a very nice man. <laughs> but um, it does uh, capture the sense of, yeah, just keep looking forward. Uh, as there's another fellow who has a nice saying uh, from the basketball realm, don't look back because um, whoever it is may be gaining on you. You know, yeah. And I, that doesn't mean to uh, ignore mistakes and to, to just keep um, uh, acting, acting, acting without having the capacity to reflect and, and observe yourself, as I said, from the balcony, look at yourself on the dance floor. It's informed and... Um, and considered action. It's not just a frenetic, uh, uh, you know, mad uh, set of activity in a, in a um, desperate uh, attempt to avoid failure. If failure is what you need to embrace and, and, and take on, then that's the action you need to take. Yeah. yeah I think you said uh, that you've, what, what is it, birthed, bought, buried, sold, sold built, built, Funded businesses throughout your, the last yeah. twenty years, uh, and so that's that's definitely a testament to it. Um, I'm curious, you um, in I think it was July 2012, you made a, a, a quite a unusual senior management uh, career decision mm. to to do something out of the blue, quite extraordinary. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, in fact, I've had um, a habit of doing this. Uh, as it turns out. So um, 
when we went over to France for the World Cup rugby in 2007. Um, I began to hatch a plot back then to celebrate Kerry, my wife's uh, uh, significant birthday, I won't mention the number, um, in 2012 in France uh, because she's a French teacher and she has a long association with France. And so um, we began to, to figure out how to get her uh, the opportunity to take two terms away from school, uh, one of which was long service leave. And then um, once we had that all sorted, um, I then decided to uh, take off for six months and step out of my role on Live Without Pay here at Arrow. And uh, that wasn't something I was seeking uh, approval for. It was something I was doing and I was... Um, hoping that Arup might be willing to uh, hold my role open for me, um, but it was something I was going to do. Uh, and we planned out uh, roughly uh, six months of um, a wonderful experience in France, partly to bring my French up to speed to a, a, at least a conversational level of competency, but also to walk the 800 kilometres of the Camino de Santiago or the Chemin de Saint-Jacques de Compostelle in French, um, in the French uh, countryside leading up to the place where we've begun that walk before, which actually then continues right across Spain. Uh, some time on a, a peniche, a, a canal boat, uh, with uh, 16 other friends. So we had three canal boats for the, for the week. And we spent some time in Corsica and did some other uh, wonderful things. And um, as it turns out, got ready to go down to Antarctica, which I accidentally got myself muddled up in too. So Kerry and I had six wonderful months together, uh, about nine years into our marriage, that I just decided um, there was no point waiting another decade for. Um, and so I wrote, I did some stuff. We had a, a wonderful time together and uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. And I feel a bit naked right now. Uh, not having uh, the grand plan uh, for the next uh, little sojourn uh, in the schedule. So that's something that we're working on. I got this line from a Disney movie, so you'll have to forgive that. Mm -hmm. But when you've, when you've reached a goal, that's the best part because you can find new goals right. to, to uh, <laughs> chase after. Yeah, um, yeah I, remember, I remember we had, um, we had a, a conversation about this impending trip uh, at the start of 2012, and, and I was in a similar position myself where I was right. taking taking significant yes, amount of yes, time off. Yes, you did too. Yeah. Uh, and I remember sitting down and talking to you and being a little bit concerned about how you would take the news that mm. I was taking off and how others would take the news. And at the time you just said, you know, it has to be done. Uh, this is the time that's, that's important. So, you know, like, um, thank you for giving me that advice at the time. And I think it's it's totally aligned to what we've been talking about in terms of being able to step out and get onto the balcony and observe what's been happening on stage. Mm. Um, because I, I know that when I was traveling, I had just all this time to experience the world, A, but B, I could, I could at a really a good arm's length distance, look at the career that was, mm. look at the decisions that I'd made, plan proactively about things that I'd like to change and do in the future. Um, and I would say... I wouldn't be doing this today if it hadn't been for that wonderful experience of stepping outside the boundaries mm. um, and changing what's normal, what's not, uh, what's normal to be done. Yeah, you remind me again. Uh, I'm enjoying, even though it's a, a slightly um, 
frustrating read, this anti-fragile book by Taleb. Um, but when you think about it, when you take on a job in a big company and you turn up, you get given the role description, even though there are a few of us at Arab who have them, to, to be truthful. But there's a role you're meant to be playing. What are your options? Where are they? And how might you exercise them when you're in that role? Actually, often, there are no options that are formally available to you. The, the path ahead is do your job. One day, maybe when we're ready, we may promote you. We might also make you redundant, actually. but You might die. You might die. Point. But the only option is pretty much when we see fit, we may promote you. Um, what we don't say to people is um, at any point in time, you could be pursuing option A or B or C or D. You don't have to stick in this current role. You, perhaps you're enjoying it and maybe it's fantastic. That's all good. But you should always remember that at any time, you could also be pursuing options A, B, C, D, or maybe E and F that you could create for yourself in this wonderful world we have here at Corporation X. And that optionality and giving people uh, a chance to ditch what they've been doing and embrace something new, I think that's something that um, I realised is, especially in our current environment, and to satisfy the kind of mindset of a young person like yourself and others we've both worked with here, um, I think that's something we have to think much more deeply about and give people those options and because that's what can challenge and push people rather than imagining you coasting along in a certain role until the company decides otherwise. Mm. Does yeah, that make sense? It, it does. Uh, I remember Stuart Candy, an old right. colleague of ours, he was talking to me once about the um, this concept of having a spider versus um, an octopus mm -hmm. uh, where the spider is, has centralized control and it's a pneumatic way of controlling what happens with its legs, whereas an octopus uh, just kind of observes what's going on and doesn't really have control over what's happening right. with the legs. I, I think also there might have been a starfish in there okay. too, where you can cut off <laughs> any one of the legs and it will regrow uh, and, and so okay. on. Different ways of yes. understanding the formal yeah. control structures within an organization. And I think what you're talking about touches on the opportunity for someone to say, I think we should be doing things differently. Mm. I've seen the evidence at hand. I've been observing the market. I've been observing the structures. I've been observing what have you. And here's my idea for what's going to be the next generation of this business. We're in it for the long haul. Yep. And uh, again, that's something that uh, there's a bias against in a, in a big old company with a big old leadership group that have been around for a long time. So... Uh, as you might have heard me say before, um, someone, a client told me ages ago, if you want to have a conversation about the future, you should get together your young people, the slightly crazy ones, one or two good people who've recently left, a couple of people you've recently hired, and the senior people should take notes and get the coffee if you want to have a conversation about the future. Yeah. Um, listen, take notes, and get the coffee. Yeah. But that's a difficult message for, for many senior people to uh, imagine. Mm. Would you say that your, the, these kinds of changes or mindset changes that you've had, 
Uh, would you say that, that that's going to be part of the, I guess, skeleton of what happens for your career in the future? Yeah. Do you see yeah, that I as being so. important? And I'm also, I see, uh, so I giggle when I see this uh, holacracy uh, word and idea now coming through. So we called it a holarchy um, back in 1996. So... Um, Within the management consulting arm of uh, Computer Sciences Corporation, we were a pretty ambitious group of people, all with different backgrounds and wanting to create a special uh, firm. We um, realised that hierarchy was not something we were comfortable with uh, in this band of of radical consultants who were going to do big change fast, we used to call it. And it was in the days of business re-engineering. So the, the chair of the firm we were part of, Index, was Jim Champy, who wrote the book Re-Engineering the Corporation with Michael Hammer. These are names that predate your birth, but... My uh, blank, my blank names. expression. Google Hammer and Champy, okay. Re-Engineering the Corporation. Big change fast. This is what we uh, were about. I love that slogan. Yeah, and we um, realised that a hierarchical structure was no good to us. So we experimented with a non-hierarchy for two years, and it didn't go well. (laughs) We did some great work with clients. We had roles and responsibilities on projects and so on, no problem. But back in the office, we tried to sustain this um, idea that we were all a happy bunch of equals and that we didn't need any particular hierarchy of roles and so on. How many people are we talking about? Uh, About 30 uh, in the local firm. And the firm, more broadly across the world, was playing with this idea too. We're about a four, five hundred person firm globally, but we were pushing the envelope further down here in the Australian outpost. And you can uh, get away with more down here for a while until someone adds up the numbers. So, um, so what went wrong? Well, non non hierarchy, self organising, self managed teams might work in certain circumstances, but it couldn't work in a management consulting firm trying to do the ambitious work we were doing. There's a long story behind why I don't think it's the right context. But what we realised was that it's not a bipolar thing. It's not non-hierarchy versus hierarchy. There's another thing called a holarchy, based on the idea of holons, of fractal structure. And that's what people now I see are talking about as um, holacracy and uh, Say the fellow at Zappos apparently has just invented this. There's actually not that many new ideas in the no. world. Um, so this is an idea. He's an interesting guy, though. Yeah, absolutely, and it's great to see that he's he's now tinkering with this idea. And that's to say that uh, you actually each of you are both an important unit and an important element of the next level whole, and so all the way up and all the way down, and that means that you've got to recognise that the success of each person is critical to the success of the whole and you must be both contributing to do the role that you've been asked to do, uh, that you've taken on, and playing your part in delivering the next level goals and objectives of the team that you're part of. And while everyone can be equal in value as a human being and as a teammate and contributor, you each create different value for clients. So a one-year-in intern person who has just come out wet behind the ears from Wharton or somewhere else um, might not quite create the same value for the firm as a senior partner who's selling $10 million worth of work a year who holds a, a, a constellation of relationships to die for. That person creates more value for the firm today. 
but we all know that young person is going to create enormous value for the firm th- through into the future. Mm. So we treat one another as equals, as humans. Um, but we all have different roles and responsibilities. Someone's got to look after collecting the debt. Someone's got to, you know, so there needs to be some structure. But it can feel like what they're now speaking of as a holarchy rather than as a hierarchy where I am more important than you. Make no mistake about that, buddy. <laughs> and if you are that young person who's got this idea about the next thing we should be doing, about what we should be doing to disrupt ourselves, to cannibalize our own existing business, it's much more likely to be listened to in a holarchy where we're equals than it gets listened to in a hierarchy. It seems like it's also more likely to be voiced in a holarchy rather than in a hierarchy as well. You know, the the one-year intern wouldn't dare say anything about how we should do business differently in the future in that different structure. Because if they believe that my fate is in your hands then they're not going to be willing to upset you. You'd better know what you're doing. Exactly. <laughs> I, I so, put my trust in you to know what you're doing. Yeah, right. Not asking <clears throat> me for the answers. Yes. So in a team of 30 at that time, mm. at that scale, in that context, it didn't work. Non-hierarchy didn't work. Non-hierarchy didn't work. Holarchy, holarchy began to work. May have? Or yeah, it began to work, but right. um, we ran out of time uh, to, to go too far further with it. I see. Um, uh, in the end, it's a long story, but the global CEO of uh, the consulting arm decided to shut it. Decision made. Boom. Yep. On 30 June 1998. So as, as an extension to your wonderful six months away, um, taking time on the balcony, you had uh, the experience of being on a different kind of balcony, observing different kinds of actors. Uh, would you like to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to um, go down to Antarctica as part of our support team for the Shackleton Epic expedition that our colleague Tim Jarvis led in January, February 2013. So we had the, the great fortune to go across to Chile, uh, down to Antarctica, and uh, spend some time on the support vessel uh, while Tim and the team were getting ready to reenact what Shackleton achieved 100 years ago, which was to, after his boat was frozen in the ice, um, sail a tiny little lifeboat, just seven and a half metres long, a wooden lifeboat, without any GPS or any of those modern communication gadgets we've got today, to sail at 800 miles across the Southern Ocean, reach South Georgia, where he landed on the wrong side of the island, and then he had to walk 42 kilometres with his two colleagues, uh, who were still fit, uh, up to two and a half thousand meters across the mountains and glaciers of South Georgia to get the Strom Ness where he could raise the alarm. So um, I was absolutely on the balcony, not in a little lifeboat. Uh, I'm not insane. I suspect on some days Tim can be, and that's part of being a, a, an explorer at the level he operates. You at. don't call yourself a polar explorer no. without that. I think <laughs> not at all. Exact. Um, and they were at times in, in mortal danger, and then we won't go into that in too much detail, but make no mistake, this was a risky, uh, risky endeavour. And going back to the holacracy idea, um, or holarchy idea, what we talked about that with um, Tim, Baz, Seb, and the other guys, and that's very much the model Tim adopts for the purpose of an expedition, and that was great to see in action. When we talked to them about what their worst fears were, um, how they would handle uh, catastrophic events. It was clear that 
Tim was responsible for the whole team. Uh, yet he would hold each man responsible for their role on the expedition. So Paul Larson was the sailor and Nick Bubb, uh, the second sailor. Paul was the navigator and he invested in Paul 100% responsibility for the navigation. Baz was the mountain man. Once they got across the water and they were trying to get across South Georgia, Baz was in charge of charting the route, understanding how to detect where crevasses are or are not, and, and how to navigate that territory. And only in the context of some particularly um, difficult issue that might affect the success of the whole expedition would Tim ever need to intervene and make a decision. Um, he wouldn't fiddle with the domain of each of these world-class people he'd chosen. So um, that was great to observe. We um, ourselves had the great opportunity to see Antarctica. Um, it's expensive to go down there. Uh, this wasn't a, a jaunt um, at uh, Arab's expense. This was largely at our own uh, expense. And you can see um, why it's probably good to keep it expensive uh, and keep humans out of there because it's just such a, a beautiful wilderness, one of the few left on Earth, to see the whales and penguins and God knows what else down there and just the sheer expanse of ice, snow and water, mountains and so on. Just a, a wonderful experience. So looking at what Shackleton did and, and doing the one-day program I now lead for clients, um, thinking about the Shackleton approach where I can, circling back to where we began, there's no doubt in my mind he simply loved his men and that was a core principle of, of how Shackleton got his men through 15 months of hell. And uh, he created a framework of discipline. He certainly had a holarchy uh, twinge to him. Um, he was probably a little bit more uh, uh, a man in charge. They called him the boss. Um, and I'm sure Tim needs to do that uh, more often than he might like to uh, say sometimes in, in moments on an expedition because lives are at stake. Um, but certainly Shackleton reinforced that every man was a valuable member of the team and every man was expected to, to, to play their role. So, yeah, in many aspects of his realistic uh, optimism, um, he wasn't a Pollyanna person, um, but famously at one moment when the ship went down, he was standing off to one side because he couldn't face watching the um, endurance go beneath the ice as it was finally crushed by the pack ice. But once it had disappeared through the ice, he walked back over towards the men, gathered them together and said, ship and stores have gone, so now we'll go home. He didn't say, we're dead. He didn't say, oh my God, what do we do now? Uh, he said something completely outrageous. Um, yet framed the situation as, okay, our next job from here on in is to get home together. And there's lots and lots of, we haven't got time today to talk so much about um, Shackleton's amazing story, but we don't hold him up as a Superman. You know, only Superman or Wonder Woman wear their undies on the outside. We don't hold Shackleton up as a superhero. He was a mortal person who did some uh, very clever management tools and tactics and communication things and, and teamwork things that mere mortals like you and I can do. So, yeah, it was a fantastic experience to be part of and all credit to Tim and the team who actually managed to uh, recreate what Shackleton did. Pull it off. Hmm. There's uh, the phrase that, that I liked uh, has come back to me, which is building things through a compelling vision of the future. 
And, and I think that's a great example mm. of, of that exact point that we're going home now. Yeah. You've just given me a compelling vision of the future. We're not going to stay here stranded and die. This is the plan yeah. to get home. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there were lots of little things then Shackleton did to keep reinforcing his belief that they would get home. Awesome. Well, all right. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much, Jason. I've enjoyed much. the conversation. It's been wonderful having you. Great. Um, make sure you stay tuned for more interviews coming shortly on Tickler. I've got a bunch of great guests coming up, so keep your ears peeled. As always, you can subscribe to Creative Agency in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. And uh, don't forget to leave a review in iTunes if you're loving the show. So, until next time, stay creative. <laughs>